All right, so this morning, as uh, you can see, we are here once again in the book of Acts. And the, the verse that I'm wanting to focus on today is just the very last verse that we read together. Um, really, the last part of the verse there where it uh, states that it was in Antioch that the disciples were first called Christians. And so we're, we're kind of just looking at really the first Christians. That's what I want to focus on today. But I want to just kind of give us a little bit of the background, just remind you. Um, previously, we saw, how, we saw how the gospel has been um, making its way, um, you know, from sort of from people group to people group. And we saw how it transitioned uh, through the ministry of Peter um, it transitioned from the Jewish world to the Gentile world. And in that story that we saw about Cornelius, the Roman centurion who comes to faith in Christ. Now, uh, so, so there, that's where we see the transition from Jew to Gentile. Now, Cornelius was indeed a Gentile, but as I mentioned, uh, he was what you would call a God-fearer. So as a God-fearer, he was, even though he was a Gentile, he had an, an influence from uh, the, the, the Jewish religion, and he had already to some degree embraced that without an actual conversion to Judaism. So by the time Peter comes to him with the gospel, uh, Cornelius has already moved away from the idolatry that would have been his practice from his youth. And now he's, uh, he's in, in a sense, he's worshiping the one true God, even before Peter comes to him. And in the book of Acts, up until the point that we arrive at right now, every story that's been conveyed to us about those who have come to faith, they've all come with uh, some kind of uh, a connection in the past to Israel's ancient religion. But when we come to the passage today and the people that are referred to in the passage today, th now this is the first group who has no connection to Judaism whatsoever. So they're referred to here as the Hellenist, uh, and, and these are just the rank and file, um, basically the idolaters of their day. Now, in, in the world at that time, you were, either, uh, you were either a Jew and you worshiped the one true God or you were engaged in some form of idolatry. And so these are people that had no influence from Judaism, so all of their background would have been essentially in idolatrous religion. And, and these men that we read about here, we, we don't even know what their names were, uh, but they were people that were scattered because of the persecution of Stephen. We read about that several weeks ago. And, and they have been traveling to these various locations and sharing the gospel. And when they come to the city of Antioch, they kind of just take a a step of faith and say, well, why don't, why don't we just reach out to the Hellenist? Why don't we just see if these guys might be open to the gospel? And sure enough, as they do that, uh, they find that they are very open to the gospel. And we read there that a great many people um, came to the Lord 
there in the city of Antioch. So um, let's talk about Antioch for a moment, just again to kind of uh, set the background. So Antioch, and, and I want you to notice now, so this is the first time that, this, that the text records for us that there's ministry going on outside of the geographical boundaries of Israel, the promised land. Now, it could very well be that there were other things happening because uh, the people that had come for Pentecost had probably by this time all gone back to their countries and they, they probably took the gospel with them. But as far as Luke is concerned, following uh, the, the record here, um, this is the first place where Luke pinpoints that something uh, substantial is happening outside of the land of Israel. So Antioch is uh, the capital of the Roman uh, province of Syria. So this is in the region, but it's now uh, crossed over into uh, Syria. And Antioch is the third largest city in the Roman world at the time. So the only uh, larger cities would be Alexandria in Egypt and Rome itself. Uh, the, the population at the time is estimated to have been uh, 500,000 plus. So it's a pretty substantial population in the city of Antioch. And it was an extremely cosmopolitan city. Uh, it was made up of uh, Romans and Greeks and Jews and Persians and Indians and Chinese and Africans. And it was very multi, you know, it was like a melting pot as we would sometimes refer to those kinds of cities. And uh, it was really, in so many ways, it was the ideal place for the gospel to really begin to do what God intended it to do. And that, of course, was to reach the nations. And John Stott put it this way. He said, no more appropriate place could be imagined either as the venue for the first international church or as the springboard for the worldwide Christian mission. So it's, it's the ideal place. And really, as we follow the story, in a lot of ways, Antioch becomes kind of the new center of the gospel. Uh, as, as, we, as we go on in the story, Jerusalem sort of, you know, they, they sort of bogged down in their um, kind of a legalism. They're, they're kind of hung up on the, the Jewish question. And Jerusalem sort of loses its momentum as, as the center. And Antioch, in many ways, replaces Jerusalem as uh, the center of, of gospel outreach. So that's the city where these things are happening. And as we've already seen, it's the Hellenist that these men decide that they're going to reach out to. Now, there's a debate among uh, Bible expositors as to, you know, were the Hellenist, were they God-fearers like uh, Cornelius? Were they people that had, you know, previous connection to Judaism? I don't think they did because it... In the text, it, it talks about how these, these preachers had up until a certain point, they'd only been sharing the gospel with, with Jews or those who had a, a background in Judaism. But it says now they, they're crossing this boundary. So I personally think that what they're going to now engage in is evangelism to those who have no 
no Jewish connection. I've already kind of hinted at that. So the Hellenists, though, when you see that term, it, it refers to those who spoke the Greek language and lived according to Greek culture and custom, uh, including uh, religion for the most part, unless it's a reference to Jews uh, who spoke the language and adopted Greek culture but maintained their Jewish religion. But, it, but in this case, um, I, I think the religion here would be um, the idolatrous religions of the Greeks. And so, in other words, the people that the gospel comes to now are people who are immersed in humanism. Of course, the Greeks were the great philosophers of those centuries, so uh, they, they, they would be immersed in, in, in humanism, in hedonism, uh, in sexual immorality, and idolatry. So they're people just like us people just like, like the people we live around. And it was from these Hellenists that a great number believed and turned to the Lord. So it was these people, the Hellenists, in this place, Antioch, that the believers were first called Christians. And, and they were called Christians by those around them. They were basically called Christians because they didn't know what else to call them. And we'll look more at that in a bit. But um, I don't know if you realize this or not, but the word Christian only appears three times in the Bible. And this is one of them. Uh, the two other places, the first place is later on in the book of Acts, chapter 26, uh, verse 28, uh, King Agrippa uh, Paul is preaching to Agrippa, and there's a certain point where King Agrippa says to Paul, he says, Paul, you've almost persuaded me to become a Christian. And then Peter later would write and refer to those who might suffer as a Christian. If anyone suffers as a Christian, let him, let him uh, commit himself to God as a faithful creator. So only three times in all of the New Testament. I think that's kind of interesting considering uh, how you know, that, that label has, has obviously stuck and become the, the primary way that uh, we who follow Jesus have been identified throughout history. But it appears only three times. Uh, the, the word uh, Christi, Christianos, um, it means basically a Christ follower. Uh, some say it means, uh, you know, somebody who's like Christ, now you, you might be able to get that out of it, but, but probably more uh, directly, it means a Christ follower. And so we want to look at the kind of the big question I want to address is the question of why did they call them Christians? What, what led them to, to put that uh, label on them? So that, that's basically what we're going to look at. And there are a number of reasons. The first one, I think, and the most simple one, is that it was because, first and foremost, they carried on their lips the name and the message of Christ. So as the, the people of Antioch would encounter these, these people, uh, they, they were talking 
about Christ. They were talking about their relationship with Christ, undoubtedly. They were talking uh, undoubtedly about what Christ had done for them. They were verbally communicating the message of Christ. And so when they opened their mouths and spoke, that they were uh, identifying with Christ. So that was, that was certainly um, a part of it. But beside uh, the, the verbal aspect, uh, their lives were living out their devotion to Christ. You see, these people who were called Christians, these people lived differently. And that was the puzzling thing. It's like, you know, who are these people? They're, they're you know, we, the, it was evidently hard for, for the people of Antioch to put them in a category. They didn't seem to fit in any of the, the typical categories. So they come up with a new name for them. But, but what I want to look at is some of the things that distinguished them from the culture around them and from the other religions around them because there was a stark difference. So what were those distinguishing factors? Well, first of all, their religion was not isolationist, nor was it idolatrous. And, and this, these were kind of the two positions at the time. Now, the isolationists were the Jews. So even though they, you know, the people would understand there's some kind of connection to the Jews, yet they were very different than the Jews because the Jews were very much isolationist. They were, it didn't mean that they didn't, you know, engage in the culture in the sense that they, you know, participated in um, life in the community. They worked as, as merchants and they worked in, you know, all of the typical places. But what it means is that they were a, like a, beyond that, they were a very closed community. And Peter, of course, communicated that. Remember when we read there in, in Acts chapter 10, when he's going to go into the house of Cornelius, he says, you know, it's unlawful for a person who's a, who's a Jew to, to go into the home of a Gentile. So they were isolationist in the sense that they had no close associations with anybody who wasn't Jewish. They would have casual contact, uh, depending on how religious they were, you know, you can read in some of the rabbinical literature instruction for the people like, you know, if you're walking through the marketplace and, you're, and your robe happens to rub against a Gentile, make sure as quick as you can when you get home to get washed off because you've become defiled. So that was the attitude. They were isolationist. And then the other option really was idolatry because all of the ancient religions were to some degree or another idolatrous. But this group of people was neither. They were neither isolationist like the Jews, nor were they idolatrous like the Greeks. But they actually uh, freely associated with everyone, but never engaged in the idolatrous practices of the pagans. So they were different. They were, they, they were not, you know, that that group of people that said, you know, keep away from us. You might contaminate us. You might, you might defile us. They weren't like that. They kind of just went in and, you know, intermingled with everybody, but yet they did not engage in the idolatry that the culture around them was immersed in. So, so that's the first thing. Um, the religion was not isolationist nor idolatrous. Secondly, 
they were a multi-ethnic, multinational, socially and culturally diverse community. And, and this is very unique too, especially for the time. Uh, but believe it or not, it's also unique in our day and age. Um, back in those days, most religions were based around uh, nationality. And so, you, you know, you're just sort of born into uh, a people group and they have their religion and that's how you get your religion. There was very, very little um, conversion that took place in those days. Some people did convert uh, over to Judaism from paganism, but for the most part, people just stayed in their religion. And you know, that, that's actually true today as well. Sometimes we don't realize it, but if you think of the what some people call the, you know, the great religions of the world, um, Buddhism, Hinduism, Islam, of course, Christianity, Judaism, th those are generally the five that people talk about. Um, with every one of them, except Christianity, you find that they've pretty much remained uh, where they originated, that's their base, and they, they pretty much are uh, just made up of people of, you know, the particular nationalities. It's only, when you really look at it, it's only the Christian gospel that transcends these borders. Now, of course, the way, um, the, way the other religions, the way they populate outside of their national boundaries is they populate through immigration, generally speaking but not Christianity. Christianity crosses borders through conversion. People from those other religious uh, faiths that they were born into, they become Christians. And then they have a Christianity that is uh, in a sense indigenous to their culture. So this is what's going on in Antioch. Uh, unlike Jerusalem. Now, Jerusalem, the church in Jerusalem was predominantly, if not entirely, Jewish. And if it wasn't um, Jewish in the, the ethnic sense, it was absolutely Jewish in the religious sense. So the church in Jerusalem was made up of people who were formerly uh, Jews by religion, and probably most of them ethnically as well, but now they're believing in Jesus, the Messiah. In Antioch, it's a, it's a totally different story. In the 13th chapter of Acts here, um, we get a picture of the church in Antioch where we have a description of, of some of the leaders. So there in chapter 13, verse one, it says this, and I wanna use this as an illustration of this point. It says, now in the church that was at Antioch, there were certain prophets and teachers, and now it names uh, five people. And here they are, Barnabas. Now, we've already met Barnabas, but let's remember, Barnabas was a Cypriot Jew. So he's from Cyprus, but he's ethnically Jewish. He's a Levite, according to scripture. Um, so he would be known as a Cypriot, um, mainly. Uh, then we have, beside Barnabas, we have Simeon, who is also called Niger. Niger means black. So presumably, Niger was a black African. Lucius is a North African from 
uh, the area of Libya. So with, with all of them right now, we see that there's, there's ethnic diversity, but then we have a reference to this man, Menean. And Menean, uh, it says concerning him that he was brought up with Herod the Tetrarch. So what that tells us about him is he's from the upper classes. Herod, of course, the family of the Herods were the ruling dynasty at the time. So he was brought up alongside of Herod the Tetrarch, which would infer that he was from those upper classes. So you have, you have a multi... Um, uh, social and, and cultural diversity. You have multi-ethnic and national diversity. The last per person that's mentioned in the list is Saul. And Saul, of course, was a Jew from Tarsus. So this was unique. This was different. You would not normally find uh, this kind of thing. And so this is where they would have had uh, a distinction as well in the, the culture. Uh, thirdly, they had a new sexual ethic. Now, we are, as a, as a culture currently, we are rapidly moving toward a culture with a similar uh, sexual ethic to what they would have known in first century AD Roman culture. Uh, a, 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 cult, a culture where there were no taboos regarding sexual behavior, and it was basically a free-for-all, just as it is becoming today. Becoming, I mean, it almost entirely is today. So very similar, but now this group of people, these, these, these ones that are identified by them as Christians, they are living differently. They used to live according to the sexual ethic of the culture, which was basically do what you wanted, but then something's happened with them. They, uh, they've gone through a change and now they're living differently. So they're no longer engaging in adultery, fornication, homosexual activity, pedophilia, uh, those whatever other you know, sexual experiences there were. They are now... Uh, reserving the sexual relationship for the marital relationship. And they're doing this because they now understand that their bodies are the temple of the Holy Spirit and the possession uh, and dwelling place of God. So, th so they understand that everything's changed with them. So now their behavior changed. They're, uh, they're living according to a new sexual ethic. Also among them, uh, women were given a place of equality and honor in the home and, and, and in the community that really didn't exist in the ancient world. Now, among the Jews, there was a certain amount of honor that went to uh, the women. And of course, under just strictly the Old Testament, there was some honor. But you have to remember that um, the, the group in the New Testament called the Pharisees, uh, they, had, they had created all of these other uh, extra biblical rules and things that that really were uh, in some many cases they there was a bias against women and and maybe you've heard this before but one of the things that the devout Jew would pray uh, in the morning you know beginning you know with thank you God I'm not a Gentile the very second thing on the list was thank you God I'm not a woman so you know this was the attitude among the Jews and. Uh, among the, the rest of the culture, among the Greeks especially, uh, it was much, much worse than that, as bad as that was. There was no respect for 
um, the marriage covenant. Uh, men were pretty much free to move about and engage sexually with whoever they wanted to. Um, the women were oftentimes, you know, um, kept back from the pursuits that they might want to engage in and, and all of that uh, was happening there. So, so now here's a new community with, with a different thing happening for women. And also in this new community, uh, there is a love for family, especially children. And this is different. So again, the family in, in this culture would have, um, you know, more positive in, in the, coming from the Jewish side, but, but out in the larger culture, the family was, it was more utilitarian. It was just like, well, you know, this unit, we sort of need this, you know, for the purposes of, you know, continuing to exist as a family. But there wasn't a strong emphasis on the love component. Um, children were not highly valued or prized uh, in the culture in general. Uh, but, the, but now this new group of people, uh, they are the ones who uh, began to oppose infanticide. Uh, infanticide was basically the ancient method of abortion where rather than you know, ripping a child from its mother's womb, the child would be born and then they would just take the child and place it in the elements to die of you know, cold or heat or starvation or whatever. That was very, very common. Very, very much a common practice in the first century AD. Uh, plus, they also took care of the widows and the orphans, which again was not something that was common in those days. Somewhat among the Jews, but not so much among the, the other uh, groups. Um, their, their work ethic was different because uh, with them it was motivated by their desire to bless others rather than just simply to get rich or to um, you know, use their, their, their wealth uh, on themselves. So it was a desire to bless others as well as to glorify God. So in all of these ways, there was just a radical difference. You could see the difference. They were living the life that Jesus had uh, both modeled in many ways and, and also taught them. But the primary thing that set the church apart from the culture was love. So here's this community where people love each other. And again, here's, here's the real distinctive thing. They're not from the same ethnicities. They're not from the same national backgrounds. Of course, you could find love in those kinds of contexts. The Jews very much, in a sense, you know, sort of loved each other because they had the commonality of the Jewishness. But in this group, you have people that are, are different. They're from different nations. They're from different uh, ethnicities. They're from different cultures. They're from different classes. And yet, they, they love each other. They treat one another equally. They, they seek to treat one another fairly. One of the biblical pictures of the church is that of a nation whose citizens love each other. Now, the Bible gives us several pictures of the church trying to get us to see, you know, just exactly uh, what God has in mind for us. So, of course, Paul talks about the church being the body of Christ. Uh, scripture talks about the church being the bride of Christ. 
Um, but scripture also talks about the church being um, its own nation. Peter says you are uh, a holy nation, a royal priesthood, a special people. And so it is a nation of people who love one another. Uh, they express that love by helping each other, encouraging each other, uh, building one another up, looking out for their neighbor, uh, putting the needs of others before themselves. And again, they're people from all of these diverse backgrounds. They're living in, uh, together and loving and serving one another with joy. And so that's what the church was, this, this church in Antioch. And it was the same if you went to Thessalonica, it was the same if you went to Rome. And that picture is not only communicated to us in the pages of the New Testament, but many who observed the church in those days and wrote about what they saw. This was the, the thing that stood out most of all. It was their love. One writer from the second century, uh, a philosopher named Aristides, uh, he wrote this. He said, concerning the Christians. He said, they seek to persuade their servants or handmaids or children to become Christians by the love they have for them. And when they have become so, they call them without distinction brothers. They walk in all humility and kindness and they love one another. When they see a stranger, they bring him to their homes and rejoice over him as over a true brother. For they do not call brothers those who are after the flesh, but those who are in the spirit and in God, such is the law of the Christians and such is their conduct. So here's a non-Christian philosopher looking at the, the Christian community and saying, you know, the thing that stands out about them is they, they, they have this love for each other. Um, listen to the words of the emperor Julian, who was absolutely no fan of the Christian church. Um, in his day, uh, he, he found it difficult, uh, much more difficult than he had expected uh, to put new life into the uh, traditional Roman religion. So he wanted to do his best to, to kind of remove the influence of Christianity from the culture. This is in uh, the middle 300s. So the church has been around for you know, 350 years or so. Uh, he wanted to reverse all of that. And he sought to uh, revive the, um, the uh, traditional Roman religion and to set aside uh, Christianity. But he saw clearly the drawing power of Christian love um, as his biggest obstacle to his objective. He said this, these are his words, atheism, that was what he called Christianity. Uh, because, you know, for them, they believed in this multiplicity of gods. Christians obviously did not. So they were referred to as uh, atheists by the emperor. And he says, um, atheism has been specially advanced through the loving service rendered to strangers and through their care for the burial of the dead. Listen to this. He said, it is a scandal that there is not a single Jew who is a beggar and that the godless Galileans care not only for their own poor, but for ours as well. While those who belong to us look in vain for the help 
that we should render them. <laughs> so he's like, you know, we're gonna have a really tough time reinstituting the ancient Roman religions unless we can come up with uh, something greater than the love of the Christians. Because they don't just love themselves, they love others. And our people looking to us for help, they, we, don't, we don't deliver it. So this was one, one of the huge um, distinctions that there was among this group of people. So here in Antioch, as this church gets established, and as more and more people in the, the, the community there, in the city, as more and more people are, are, are coming to faith in Jesus, those around them are looking on and wondering, you know, what, what is this? And what I want to say here is that the, the followers of Christ were, they were enigmatic. They were an enigma. In other words, they didn't fit into existing categories. The, the people outside just didn't know how to tag them. They didn't really know how to label them. They're, they're different. And, and listen, this is the beauty of the Christian life. The Christian life and the Christian message if, if the Christian life is lived out and the Christian message is clearly proclaimed, it is a different thing. It is an enigma. It, it doesn't fit in with the, uh, the preconceived categories that people have. Now, we live in a time, of course, where um, Christians, I think, have to some degree been stereotyped, but at the same time, I think we've lent to the stereotype. And so for many people today, uh, you know, the minute you mention being a Christian or you say you're a Christian, you know, automatically they sort of have a category that they put you in. But that's the problem. They shouldn't be able to do that. They actually should have this kind of response. When they hear you're a Christian and they observe you or they listen to you, their response really should be, you know, I don't know. I, I didn't think Christians were like that. Wait, wait, you're, what, what do you mean you're a Christian? No, that... That's not typically a Christian thing, is it? <laughs> it you know, because they, they've, got a, they, they've got something in, in their mind that they think is a Christian. But we should be, in a sense, um, as we live for Jesus, we should kind of be uh, perplexing to the people around us. They, they should not be able to uh, really categorize us so easily. And so if, if we find ourselves sort of being easily put into those slots, if we find ourselves being so easily sort of categorized, I, I think we have to ask ourselves the question, um, are we really living like Jesus? Because these people, like I said, they, they didn't have a category for them. So they had to invent one said, well, I guess they're Christians. They're, they're talking about this Christ person and they're, they're living distinctly from us and they're following the teachings of Christ. So, okay, we'll call them Christians. 
But you know, we've come to a time, and especially in our culture, where again, there is a um, kind of a stereotype of, of what a Christian is. And although I think uh, many times it's wrong, but sometimes we have, we have lent to the stereotype. Let me give you a quick example. Uh, I was driving down the road the other day and I saw, this, I saw this bumper sticker and I can't remember exactly what it said, but it said something like this. It said, I love America, I love Jesus, I love my gun. And I thought, God help us. Because that's the stereotype right there. You know, to me, there, I don't know, there was something the matter with the, those things together there. You know, especially the, I love Jesus, I love my gun. It's like, wait, how did those two things connect? Um, and I'm sure, you know, this will bother some people that I'm saying this, but, you know, nevertheless, look, it, no, you don't put those things in the same category. And when we do that, then we, in a sense, rightly get stereotyped. But that is not who we are. That, 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 those things are not connected. You know, I'm all for being patriotic, but again, also, you know, the, even I love America, I love Jesus, those are not really connected either. Not saying that you can't love your country, of course you can, but let's remember, these are, these are different categories. And when we get, you know, this super nationalistic kind of mentality, then what happens is we start to exclude other people that we might think are sort of messing up our, you know, society or whatever, and then we're shutting the door, really, for the gospel, because we're sending a message that, well, you know, uh, you're, not, you're not really, you know, you're not welcome here. And that, that should never be the case. And that was not the case with them. They were an enigma, and we should be an enigma as well. There was something different and a bit perplexing about them, and, and that really ought to be the case with us. They were different than both the religious and the non-religious. They were different. It's kind of like, wait, where do we put these people? And they're, they're not like the religious people that we've known, self-righteous, holier-than-thou type of attitude. No, they're not like that, but, but they're certainly not the irreligious either. So, so who are they? What are they? And you could even say the same thing in regard to morals. They were different uh, than both the moral and the immoral. Morality often leads to moralism. And moralism is basically a, a position where you hold a, a superior place to somebody because you feel that your morality is uh, superior to theirs. So they, they weren't that either. They weren't simply moralists. There were many moralists in the culture of the day. There were many uh, who were influenced by Greek philosophy, which pretty much rejected the ancient uh, mythologies and religions, and, and they sought to, to live uh, a moral life. Um, but they, they could sense with these Christians, no, that wasn't it either. But they certainly were not immoral because they were not participating or engaging in the things that the, the culture uh, generally was doing. So they were, I think, in the truest sense of what this means. They were in the world, but they were not of the world. Now think about that statement. How many of you have ever 
uh, used that before to refer to yourself as a Christian. You're in the world, but not of the world. Anybody ever use that before? Anybody ever hear that saying, hey, we're in the world, but we're not of the world? Well, you know, there's, there's actually no Bible verse that says that, but it's taken from something Jesus said. And, and it's, it's fine. It, 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 you know, kind of, you know, borrowing from what Jesus said, it's, it's kind of another way of, he didn't say it exactly, but he said something similar. So for us, we think, okay, yeah, you know, as Christians, we're in the world, but we're not of the world. But I know for myself and many people that I've known over the years, uh, being, we, we have understood being in the world as, well, we, we live on the same planet as everybody else, so we're in the world, but we're not of the world, meaning we uh, are, are pretty disassociated from everybody else out in the world. And so kind of like the Jews, we end up being a bit isolationist where we look at everything uh, out in the world and we say, okay, that's, that's the world, that's bad, we don't go there. So we, we have created our own subculture to some degree. Uh, we, we've created our own space. And we say, well, we're in the world, you know, we gotta live here, but we're not of it. But really, if you think about that statement, and I think the biblical picture is being in the world means that you actually do live in the world. And you really do anyway. <laughs> you, you, you live in the world, you go out into the world, you engage with the world, you go off to work, uh, you go out and shop like everybody else. Uh, you oftentimes are involved in the same uh, activities of you know, whether it's entertainment or sports or all those things. So, so, so we live in the world, right? And we're supposed to live in the world. We're not supposed to disengage from the world. We're supposed to be in the world so we can influence the world, but the only way we can influence the world is if we're in it, but not of it. So that's the key. So like these early Christians, they still associated with many of the, the people they would have formally associated with, but they do not engage in the things that they formally engaged in. And that in and of itself would be an opportunity to have a conversation. Hey, how come you're not doing this anymore? You know, some of you have probably had that conversation. I know I certainly had that conversation when I came to Christ and then still, you know, connected with people from my past and, and we would be there and, you know, some things we would be doing like we normally did. But then when other things started to happen, it's like, you know, they would look at me like, well, Brian, what, you know, what's going on? How come you're not doing this? Well, let me tell you, I'm following Jesus now. And as a Jesus follower, we don't do that. And they open up an opportunity to share the gospel. But they were, and we are, and we must uh, manifest this. They were Christians. They were like Christ. They were followers of Christ but they were a bit of a mystery. And that's what I want to leave us with. May we too be enigmatic followers of Christ in our generation, being called Christians, not merely because we've taken that name to ourselves, but because that's the only name others can come up with to describe us. Now, it's fine to take the name to ourselves. I mean, we do identify as Christians, 
but God help us to have other people identify us as Christians. God help us to have other people identify us with Jesus. Because there's a, a, a lot of confusion in the, in the current culture about who Christians are. You know, some people think Christians, and we'll throw in another word here, uh, uh, evangelical. You know, evangelical means proclaimers of good news. That's what evangelical means. What's the good news? The good news is the gospel. Uh, today, in the minds of many people, evangelical means uh, people who vote a certain way. <laughs> evangelical is a voting block. God help us to get away from that stuff. Well, that's not to tell you how to vote. It's just to tell you that, that that's not what we're to be identified with. No, a Christian is to be identified with Jesus. That's why they called them Christians, because they were obviously connected to Jesus. And so if we're connected to Jesus, listen, we are going to perplex people at times. We're going to say things and do things that people look at and say, wait a second, I thought you were a Christian. Wait, Christians don't think that way, do they? Christians don't do that, do they? And the answer is, well, yeah, you know, didn't you know that? No, this is, this is what a Christian is. You, you might have, uh, you know, you might have an, uh, an image in your mind of what you think a Christian is, but let me, let me show you from the Bible. Let me show you from my life. No, this is, this is what a Christian is. So we're going to be perplexing. We're going to be a bit of an enigma. And, and if we're not, if, 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 if we are very stereotypical, if people already know in advance, like, oh, well, you're a Christian, and I know you think just exactly this, and this is that, and, you know, that, we need to get away from that. And if we do uh, follow Jesus, we will indeed do that, because Jesus did that all the time. Remember, they came to Jesus with all kinds of questions. Some people came with sincere motives. Some people came with the wrong motive of wanting to entrap him. But go through the Gospels and look at how many times Jesus absolutely blew people's minds. It's like, wait, what did he say? What? No, he wasn't supposed to say that. Or, wait, what's he doing? Why is he over there? He, he shouldn't be over there. He's not supposed to be there. Look, who, who are those people that he's with? No, he's not supposed to hang around with those people. So you see, he was an enigma. And, and we will be an enigma to a certain degree as well. And of course, just... For clarification, in case anybody misinterprets anything I'm saying, you know, I'm, I'm not saying that there's anything that we're going to be doing in the end in our uh, enigmatic, uh, you know, manifestation of Christ that's going to ever contradict what Christ has said in his word. But what we have happened and what every generation of Christians has happened is, is we pick up stuff along the way that, well, wait a second, this really isn't Jesus. This is something else. This is something that we've brought on board that really doesn't have a place with us as followers of Jesus. It might not even be uh, you know, a, a bad thing in the sense that you would look at it and go, oh my goodness, that's a horrible thing. But, but it's just an inconsistency with the way Jesus is and the way we should be as those who are following him. And this, I, I think, I'll just say this in closing. Uh, you know, this is, this is a true statement. 
many people are intrigued by and even interested in Jesus, but they feel that his followers have not really given a very good example of what he's like. And so they, they're turned off by the church and Christians, but they're still intrigued by and open to Jesus. So since that is really a reality in our culture, uh, let's, let's, let's break that down by being more like Jesus so that we can show them that, well, you know, those, those things that, you know, you might've seen, and of course we've all made those mistakes. The church collectively has made them. We have individually uh, made those mistakes. But let's, let's be able to say to people, you know what? Yeah, I, I understand that that's a kind of a stumbling block to you. But let me tell you, Jesus is not like that. That's not Jesus. Let me show you what he's really like. And of course, we've got the scriptures. That's the place where we're going to see him the clearest. But he wants people to be able to see him through our lives as we live them out as individual believers and as we live them out as a community of Christians, followers of Christ.